had to be you. Is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. I'm in love with Could you. make me be true. Snap out of it. Could make me be true. The magnificence that comes out of your eyes and your voice and the way you stand there and the way you walk. You're lit from within, Tracy. It had to be you, wonderful you. It had to be you. Hello, romantics. Welcome to A Pod to Be You, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and we are continuing the queer romance miniseries that began uh, last month in April. Um, and I'm really excited to uh, introduce my guest because uh, he has been on the show, I think, three times. This is the third time. So you're actually the most uh, frequently returning guest, um, Alex. So yeah, my guest is uh, the great Alex Marcus podcast director of the pop break hello Welcome hi back. well it's only it's only fitting because my former film podcast cinema joe's you were the most frequent guest on that as well <laughs> so I, I was a little bit more generous with my invites i think you were up to like seven by the time we closed the lights off on that show well i think for a while i was into this idea of like never having returning guests and just like always <laughs> finding someone new and then i realized that like i don't know that many people <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, I want to keep talking to my friends. So I think uh, returning guests are going to become much more frequent in the next, you know, next batch of episodes. Gotta um, have friends of the pod. Yeah, Makes basically. feel like a community. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, welcome back. Thanks for being on the podcast for this miniseries. I'm really, uh, really excited to have you um, because you have selected a movie that is very dear to my heart, directed by a man who is very dear to my heart. Um, so would you like to introduce the film for us today? Sure. I'm here to talk about the 1993 film, The Wedding Banquet, directed by Oscar-winning director Ang Lee. This is probably his most unknown film, I feel like. This was a movie that I had never heard of before uh, taking on the quest of seeing every Ang Lee film uh, one summer, uh, courtesy of the Blank Check podcast. Uh, and I was so grateful to have done it because it's this fantastic movie that we're going to get into about... Uh, it's a little bit hard to describe the plot because it's essentially this this story about a a gay couple, uh, one uh, American and one uh, a person from Taiwan who has immigrated to America uh, and is a high powered lawyer of some kind. Um, they're in a domestic partnership, but the Taiwanese half of it, uh, his parents don't know, and they keep trying to get him to be hooked up with some uh, Taiwanese ladies from across the pond. And eventually uh, they end up uh, making an arrangement with their uh with their tenant who is about to get deported back to shanghai and uh and the parents are so overjoyed that they come on over to america to participate in the wedding and uh then things get complicated starts out as a bit of a rom-com ends up as a kind of beautiful family drama and yeah. i can't wait to get into all the nitty-gritty details with you yeah um yeah that blank check miniseries was faithful for me as well because that's when I really I mean I'd always been a fan of Ang Lee like you know I, I realized I'd seen every movie of his in the theater since since Hulk 
which is wild to think about um, because it was like, I definitely, definitely saw Broke Rock Mountain, definitely saw Less Caution and Taking Woodstock. I think like, yeah, like take, I think Less Caution and like Taking Woodstock was like when I was like, oh, I'm really paying attention to Ang Lee and then of course Life of Pi and then Billy Lynn and uh, Gemini Man and stuff. So yeah, like um, I'd always been a fan of Ang Lee, but that podcast miniseries from, I want to say it was April 2018. That's when it started, or like maybe summer 2018. Um, and, uh, you know, that's when I decided to buy the Life of Pi 4K disc. And anyone who's followed me on any social media knows that, um, you know, Life of Pi is a movie that I enjoy to some degree. Um, but yeah, the one thing we have in common. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Whitening Banquet, I. Um, hadn't seen it was kind of hard to find for a while uh it still is i think a little you know kind of shit moves around different streaming services um but i I ended up watching it for the first time back in 20 i want to say 2021 actually it was quite recently um i was on another podcast called the mixed reviews with my friends gavin and louis um who have both been on the podcast years ago i gotta have them back on um they invited me on their podcast to talk about the filmography of Ang Lee. So I watched all of his movies and and had watched the Wendy Bingham for the first time and fell in love with it. I mean, it's a, it's such a charming, sweet movie. Um, it's a lot. It's very surprising. Um, and um, I just say I, I I found it to be a lot more um, uh, progressive, I think, than. Um, I, I initially imagined, um, or, you know, with this premise being, you know, this kind of movie in the nineties, I'm kind of like, Oh, okay. What's it going to be like? But, you know, it was actually very, I think, um, if not progressive, maybe modern or like forward thinking. Yeah. I think that if it there, you know, there's a certain, uh, cultural touchstones and accoutrement and aesthetic that is specific to 1993, uh, in terms of the earrings that some of the people wear or the shorts, you know, but for the most part, I feel like this movie could be made exactly the same to like, it could be released in theaters tomorrow and people be like, wow, this is a really interesting modern film that, uh, speaks to our time and speaks to the complicated relationships and queerness and, and the immigrant story and, and families and, parents and kids and all of that stuff it's all there yeah. and it really has this great kind of it, it's just so i think what it is is that it's such an honest accounting for these people and it takes them all seriously and that's the sort of thing that just ages really well because ultimately no matter what things spinning around in culture or in media change and shift over time that is always constant yeah yeah i think um I like how you describe this movie as honest because I feel like it accounts for, you know, kind of the more the the more like um, messy parts of this kind of dynamic. The more like kind of the less kind of candy candy coated version of this. And like, you know, like I, when I think about movies like a movie like this now, like you mentioned, like this movie could be made today, and I feel like it would be like a Netflix original movie that is number one for seven days and then gets forgotten forever and like it would be like kind of conflict adverse or very like black and white and um but this movie just has a lot of shades of gray it has a lot of authenticity to it and it really 
allows its characters to be a little ugly, a little messy, a little complicated, and to make decisions that don't quite make sense and to be very, um, you know, like, um, you know, human and and weird and strange and, and act bizarrely, but um, in, in a way that feels relatable. And that's, I mean, that's one of the gifts of, of Ang Lee, right? It's like, you know, whether it's, something as big as Life of Pi or The Crouching Hidden Dragon or it's The Ice Storm or Brookback. It's like, um, you know, he is just the master at kind of creating these very, like, ground-level, humanistic, you know, romantic, but also messy characters and situations. Yeah, that humanism, I think, is such a core part to what Ang Lee does as a filmmaker. And it's on display through all of his films. Like, when people look at his filmography, they think, like, wow, he's so experimental in terms of what genre he tells and what types of stories he tells. But if you actually sit down and watch them, every single one of his films feels like an Ang Lee movie. Movie, mm-hmm. and it's not because he has some signature shot or the uh, he always does a cool like pop song from the sixties in his in his uh, soundtrack. It's because he has this core humanism, and he where he takes all of his characters seriously, and he explores his characters relationship with themselves and relationships with others and how it fits inside of the context and that is true whether you're talking about bruce banner and the incredible hulk or you're talking about you know uh the gal family in the wedding banquet yeah so um you mentioned you watched this movie about like four or five years ago so what was your um impression when you first watched it and how has that sort of changed on subsequent rewatches yeah so i think you know (laughs) obviously ang lee has directed brokeback mountain which is this triumph of queer cinema in a lot of senses you know many people feel like it was robbed of that best picture statue but outside of that oscar context there's just a huge cultural moment for for queer depiction depictions of queer people and queer love in film uh of course it has some of the you know uh pitfalls that often come of that sort of thing where you know we don't get a happy ending one of the people dies tragically that whole thing but it really is fantastic acting fantastic story really landmark uh piece of cinema so learning that Ang Lee had actually made a queer film all the way back in 1993 that nobody talks about at all really made me curious, but also concerned because 1993 is a long way from 2005, which is a long way from 2018 when I watched this movie. And I was worried that if we had never heard of it and people talked about what a great job he did telling this queer story in Brokeback Mountain, that maybe there was a reason that we hadn't heard about it and maybe you know 1993 uh, while a very important time for queer stories in media was not always uh, feature stories that don't exactly age the best in modern light a, a lot of the times so yeah. i was concerned going in and watching it for the first time i really kind of had my guard up and was like i really hope that i don't end up hating this or find this offensive or just right, you know, cringe right. And instead, what I found was this beautiful kind of like almost like terms of endearment level uh, quality film just like that was balances comedy and drama and tenderness and so keenly observes relationships and lets them be messy and complicated and does it sets up genre cliches and then doesn't conform to those cliches and instead lets them play out honestly. 
Uh, and that just kind of blew me away. And I was so just energized by how good this movie was and how much better it was than my expectation certainly uh, said it as. And uh, then I told everyone I knew about it, and including you, and was like, you have to watch it. And then everyone I knew was like, yeah, maybe eventually. Where can I watch it? On Walmart's VOD channel. I'll rent right. it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and but slowly over the years, all of the people that I recommended watching it have finally seen it. And everyone came back and was like, oh my God, this movie is fantastic. And so I was really excited after all of that to go back and rewatch it for the podcast and uh i would say that it was just as great of an experience the second time around yeah i mean it's i don't definitely definitely agree that you know there's that like weird kind of like fear before we watched this movie of like okay like 93 small budget like semi you know um semi-international semi like you know half in english half in mandarin movie it's kind of like i don't you know i just don't know what this kind of premise and like you know like i mean angli has proven his worth but like in proven his like worth and like metal and like doing this kind of movie but you just you know it's it's concerning but I, i feel like it's such a like i mean you mentioned the um the ways that it like um kind of dances around genre cliches and kind of does things a little differently. It's um, really, um, yeah, it's really interesting because um, it, it feels like it could become like this like big farce, you know, Mm -hmm. like a lot, you know, like a kind of classic, like French bedroom farce. It could become this like, you know, very like, you know, weepy um, saccharine, like, uh dramatic film but uh in somehow it becomes both at once and it like skirts that those that line really well and um just is so like and i think what really sells the movie is that its characters are a lot like are more perceptive and more you know, they all have their own like kind of interiority and their own like self-contradicting character traits and and um and and their relationships were so profoundly crafted that you know, I think all like the more tonal shifts and the more kind of you know, I hate to use this word, but like soap opera-ish twists or whatever, like they work because these characters feel so real to us yeah like there's an element of it that is comedic there's an element of it that is melodramatic but i think that what is the the guiding north star of of the people behind the scenes was just to create as honest and authentic experience as possible by taking these characters seriously even when they're in kind of extraordinary situations and that's when i always love a story the best because Straightforward dramas can be very impactful and genre stories can have really fun aspects to them that like are very fun and exciting and you really enjoy watching them. But the, the blending of those two things are oftentimes results in movies that I love the most because you're getting this combination of the, of the fun and the thrills and the, and with this kind of taking the character seriously and exploring their internal life and exploring their relationships and trusting the audience that they'll go along with it. And, and I think that this is a great example of that. 
Like, you really think that your set, like the setup for this movie, could absolutely be the setup of a, an episode of Frasier, right? Right. <laughs> and and like you said, there's also that kind of concern of like, oh no, is this going to just launch into a sort of like, I love my dead my my dead gay son monologue uh, by the end of it? And right. like, no, like they don't do any of those things, and it's just it's yeah. just great. So I do want to mention um, that this movie is sort of like the middle chapter of sort of Ang Lee's like informal Father Knows Best trilogy. Um, and um, it's uh, Pushing Hands, The Wedding Banquet, and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, all starring um, uh, Lung Sihong, who is sort of Ang Lee's like muse in this early 90s phase of his career. And what I like about this trilogy is that I think Father Knows Best feels like a really good title for it because it's like somewhat ironic, somewhat sincere, um, somewhat of like a sarcastic, oh, Father Knows Best, but also somewhat of like a genuine being like, hey, like we should like, it's it's like, it's a push and pull between like, okay, we should be a little more um, independent of our fathers and they might not know the best, but also like we should listen to them and understand them and and like um take their take their guidance and and i feel like the wedding banquet is probably the one where it feels the most like you know a sincere father's knows best type movie because like you know mr um mr gao he is like you know a very quiet character everyone's kind of worried about him and everyone's kind of like we need to make sure that like he's okay and that like you know, uh, we have to like protect him from you know things that he doesn't want to know. But in, he's the most perceptive character in the movie, and I think like like I was saying earlier, like the like when he when he lets Simon know that like oh I understand your relationship to my son and I accept you as part of the family and you know for you know kind of putting yourself in the situation with my family and my traditions and and being in that position um you know like i it's like a moment of like acceptance and and harm and like love between it and kind of understanding of like you know um you know like he he kind of sees beyond what people tell him and i think that's kind of a it's kind of a beautiful grace note you know of showing that like even our most like traditional parents can show up signs of modernity and 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 you know forward thinking like I mean, my parents are kind of similar in that, like, you know, you you were kind of scared of them your whole life, and then you realize that, like, they're actually a lot more, you know, in some cases a lot more open and perceptive and, and thoughtful than you might imagine. Right, and then sometimes, and I think that this is an aspect of parenthood that I don't think you see oftentimes yeah. depicted in film. And I think that it's so perceptive because there's this sense that he, Mr. Gao, is filling this role that he feels like he must fill and that he's happy to fill. He's not like rebelling against the societal expectation of what a father yeah. is. But he also makes space by the end of the film to establish that that is kind of a role that he's filling and that there is another person in there that is maybe slightly separate from the role that he is fulfilling. He he respects that role of the patriarch as essential for the family's success, but he also maintains a level of agency and independence and individuality with inside of that constraint as well that is just very interesting. And I think it's it it is 
something that I do think that we see a lot in parents. And also, you know, as we, you know, age into people who have children and know people with children, the sense of like, oh, well, I'm not this person necessarily, but I know that for my kid, I have to be. Sometimes that could be really toxic. And I think this movie does kind of reckon with some of the ways that it can be toxic. But I think that just, you know, uh, Mr. Gao as a character is just ultimately so charming that he kind of wins you over even though maybe what he's doing is almost reprehensible in the sense of like he's denying his son this acceptance that his son is craving so desperately to 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 perpetrate a lie that his son has 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 fallen into so that way the family can persist and continue in a way that is respectable like there's a way where that's a truly villainous thing to do but he's just so damn charming that you don't feel that way you feel kind of like you're in on a secret with the audience like you as the audience member is in a secret relationship with mr gao along with simon and it's like no it's it's okay what matters is where his heart is and his heart is where it should be and maybe he is smarter than everybody in the room which is kind of it's a wild magic trick that they pull that off yeah and you know to me it's like i feel like it's um I, I to, to me it feels like this is another example of you know the family trying to protect each other you know and trying to protect this concept of a solid nuclear family that is existing you know across continents and you know the the trouble of you know of um you know maintaining relationships with people that are so far away and you know there's um you know i i think there's something to be said about the fact that like he wants to preserve this family unit and that um i i think he is you know um i don't know i guess reprehensible is not something that i would really want to call him i don't even know it's just like pure charm i think it's just like you know, he has his own traditions and his own beliefs, and he just wants to, um, you know, maintain that, maintain the family, but also kind of say that, like, I, you know, you do have my blessing to kind of create this new family of your own. And to. But it's, but what's so interesting is that he doesn't tell his son that because he understands, I think in a way that yeah. is true that if he does give his son that validation and that honesty that it will enable his son to give up the charade of of the family that yeah. is still important for cultural reasons and for you know the the idea that like you want to continue into a new generation and you know this is a time when you know gay a gay couple having a child of their own was a lot more fraught in a lot of ways than it is today. And uh, so yeah. I don't know if necessarily this exact same character would have even made the same choice that they're doing now if if the story was updated to this to this era. But it is it is very interesting that he is that he's smart enough and ob- observant enough to know that he needs to validate Simon because he he recognizes the love that Simon has for his son and the and the life that they've built together and he values that and he doesn't want Simon to leave as a result of this arrangement but he also recognizes that he can't validate his son because his if he does that then it will break up the the facade that is also equally important right. has cultural right 
uh, you know, um, value to it. Yeah. And, and like I and I don't mean to say that this film thinks he's morally reprehensible or that even I feel that way watching it. I just think that if you wrote down on a piece of paper that those choices that he's making and you said like, well, what do you think of this type of person? Your judgment of them would be very different than your judgment of him as you watch the film because there's just so much humanity to him. And there's such like a knowing kind of understanding of everything in a way where it feels like, where it feels like a sensible choice. It doesn't feel hurtful or mean spirited. It feels almost wise, which is kind of, crazy to wrap your head around if you think about it from a different perspective and what's interesting is that the parents leave at the end of the film you know like yeah um i'm looking at the wikipedia page and it says you know in the end bills derive some happiness from the situation and they walk off to board the aircraft leaving the unconventional family to figure themselves out which i think is a really interesting way to phrase it i mean accurate i think but um it's uh it's kind of like, yeah, like you have this unconventional family and you have this, you know, um, in some ways the f- facade doesn't really, they can take the facade back to their homeland, back to their country, back, you know, but in America, you know, I think they both kind of know, they both know, but they don't know that they, <laughs> they both know, but they don't know that the other one knows that like this facade is kind of broken and that this relationship is like, this little thruple, this family is, you know, completely out of step with, you know, this Taiwanese um, norms and societal conventions and, and, and rigidity. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And, it, and I do think that that's a big part of why it plays the way that it does. Like if, if they weren't leaving to go somewhere else, if this was a story that was set in Taiwan, for instance, and and you had to live in that forever, actively, it would feel like a much crueler, I think, status quo to be inside yeah. of. But, but they're leaving with the story that they can tell all of the nosy relatives who don't particularly matter, but but do matter in in as yeah. far as like that that world uh, exists, you know, um, but. So they have that story to tell, but they also both can leave the the family to yeah. exist on their own in a way that is honest and true to them. Uh, so it is a very interesting status quo. And it is, it's definitely a status quo that I feel like would be feel different if it was 2023 versus 1993. But, uh, yeah, but, yeah. but that doesn't, but it makes it so interesting. I think, I think it really does. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so before we kind of get into this like little love triangle, thruple, unconventional family, I want to talk about Mrs. Gao um, because oh, I think she's she, so I good. think it's probably my favorite character in the movie um, just because to me she feels like, I mean, I feel like it's the, to me, I'm very sympathetic to her. I'm very empathetic to her, even though like, watching it in like 2020s eyes it's like well lady just like accept your son like you know like help him come out or whatever but i understand like you have this whole like you know image of your son and image of like what your future family is going to look like and you're in this new country and you have all these changes and then your son's like and also everything you just experienced we did for you was a fake and a sham (laughs) I can imagine right. being a little upset and being like, I 
I'm not having the life that I, you know, thought I was going to have. And that like the uncertainty of my son's future is now even more so than it was when he was single because she just doesn't, she doesn't know. I mean, this is just my conjecture, I guess, but it's like, she doesn't know quite what life is going to look like for her kid. So I think that scares her. And also, you know, as the wife in this very traditional marriage, she's like, I got to think of my husband and like, um, worry about like, what's going to like cause him more distress. And I found that to be very empathetic. And and also just like the, the wanting to like have a big wedding for your son, I think was such a, you know, a normal, understandable feeling. Sure. Well, and I think Ale Gua, who plays Mrs. Gao, I think does such an incredible job of of being able to jump the t- like of being able to straddle that tone that this film has, where sometimes yeah. her emotional outbursts are purely comedic in a way that will make you laugh, and other times they are genuinely heartbreaking. And I think she nails both of them effortlessly, and I think that that really helps the character come together. Um, but in responding more directly to what you're talking about, I also think like it's impossible not to it, to to not consider the context at which she is receiving this information. Yeah, right? It's right, not right. a situation where they've come to America and uh, their son, Wei Tong, st- sits them down and says, hey, you know, I- I've built this beautiful life with my partner, Simon, and it really would mean a lot to, you- to me if you would respect that. Uh, instead, uh, he lies consistently and repeatedly and makes her jump through like a tremendous amount of hoops. Now, I say makes her, obviously she is making those choices and he's kind of going along with them, but she is putting a great deal of effort into finding him a mate and he's not stopping her from doing that. He's just trying right, to kind exactly. of delay a conversation that should have happened a long time ago. He's not like in his early twenties, right? Like he's a, he seems like he's like kind of like in his late twenties, early thirties at this point in his life. He's very established. Like he's had a long time to talk to her about this and has chosen not to. So that's, that, that's the situation that she's in. And then you know, she gets the news after having been told that he's marrying this woman and, and they're, they're together and, and they're, and this is what their life is like. And all of it is a lie. So it's not just a lie of omission. It's an active fraud that he's been perpetrating on them, getting her hopes up about this life that he, she wanted him to have just to rip it away from her. And then it's happening right when her husband is like in the hospital in critical condition. So this it's a lot for her to it's for, for that she is going through in the moment when she is hearing this information and in the weeks after that i i think it's and what i think is interesting is that it is very rare i think that we have the opportunity to confess this large truth about ourselves uh, that we've been hiding uh in moments that are ideal right i think that oftentimes it's in moments of of trauma, it's in moments of anxiety, it's in moments of desperation, the truth comes out that you've been holding back. And uh, when those things happen, you can't account for, you can't let that other person, you know, you can't have the assumption that that other person is just going to take it uh, well, because you're not giving them the chance to, right? You're not setting them up for success. Uh, so <laughs> I think that there, all of that is baked in and it helps kind of contextualize her emotional response wh- that she gets. And it makes us as an audience really want to empathize with her, like you said, in a way that if she was really a- against the choices that he was making 
but the context that she was getting the information was completely different, we would probably be much less likely to empathize with her. And I think that's a really smart choice from the construction of the story. Yeah, no, I agree with like everything you're saying. And I mean, again, it's like, this is like what Ang Lee does as a filmmaker is that he is just like so invested in all of his characters and kind of putting them in these situations where like there's really no right or wrong and it's like, everyone's reaction makes sense in, in, in a way because of like who they are, what situation they're in, kind of like how they're receiving and giving information. And like, you know, I mean, I, I really feel for her. I, I think this is gal, like, you know, even in the beginning when like she is, you know, like, again, like she just wants, like, this is something that like, I used to talk to my mom a lot, like, sorry, this movie brings up a lot of like, you know, thoughts about like my own like relationship with my parents just because my parents are not that similar to Mr. And Mrs. Gao, but um like come in like of course I'm not I'm not Taiwanese. I I'm Indian, but um but it's a kind of a similar thing where like, you know, before I came out, like my parents would always just be like, we just want you to get married. We just like, you know, we just want you to be settled down. We just want you to like it's like that like uncertainty like my mom i think once told me that like she was like sometimes like stays up at night worrying about me like what kind of job am i gonna get like who am i gonna marry where am i gonna live and like all this stuff and so like i'm really empathetic to that because i understand like you know i mean it, it's it was annoying having to like be like Haha, yeah i don't know when i'm getting married you know for a long time but i also wasn't making that easier for her by just talking to her um and similar as um as as Wei Wei Tang is it's like yeah he's not making his own life and his mother's life any easier by kind of being in this like half-hearted you know like haha you know like we'll see but also like living this life and then yeah like you know it comes out at you know this time and and in some ways the worst time it could come out but also like kind of the best time because it's like there's really nowhere else for them to go like they've already experienced all this like hardship it's like you might as well just you know there's no point in keeping up this facade anymore but so i really um i really empathize i mean this i mean on lee is nothing if not you know such an empathetic filmmaker i think that's one of his trademarks is that his like visual language is so compassionate um and delicate well and also i think what's so smart is that she, Mrs. Gao, is also holding on to a secret uh, when the movie begins, mm -hmm. which is also informing her choices. At least we can we can assume based on implication, right? Uh, Mr. Gao is in poor health. He had this major crisis back home, a, a medical crisis that she has not told her son about. It it doesn't take a lot of work to connect the dots that maybe her urgency in trying to get him married and having a family is at least in part inspired by the fact that she feels like her husband isn't doesn't have a lot of time left maybe she's concerned about this she yeah. wants to, him to have that opportunity to have a grandchild because that's so important to him so that's adding a level of stress to her side of things adding that urgency but it's also it's so interesting because you know Wei Tung is supposedly denying her his truth on account of her feelings but he is also not really considering what her emotional reality actually is, right? Yeah. Because 
she's just his mom, right? And right. and I say that without any judgment. That's so true about our relationships with our parents a lot of the times. Like especially once we reach adulthood, it can be hard to shift into that yeah, idea of like yeah. we're all adults in a situation, right? She's trying to protect him, he's trying to protect her. Neither of them are actually seeing each other as people with emotional realities and agency. And it's that's and that's not what the point of the movie is about. That's just a theme that's kind of running through it that informs a lot of the moments later that really are impactful. And that's, that's just the sort of thing that Ang Lee does really, really well, both in the writing and in the direction. And, and, and it's what separates this film from the kind of cheap version of it that I think we were both afraid that we were going to get into when we first heard about it. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just like, like this is sort of like how this kind of thing plays out in like the ice storm or in sun sensibility or even in billy lynn's long time long halftime walk or less caution where it's like all of these emotions are really just like bubbling under the surface and kind of seeing seeing people that you see every day in, in a new light as all these um conflicting uh conflicting family dynamics are coming out and it and somehow it's just like there's just no um oh i mean of course an atric man woman you know it's like yeah that's another theme of, of that film too it's just like seeing your parents seeing your ch- children as actual people and not just how you box them in or not box but like how you like categorize them throughout your life based on your own experiences and, and, you know, parents as people, I think is a running theme. And, um, you know, I love that this movie isn't so much like, yeah, the parents are right, (laughs) you know, and it's also, but it's also not like, Hey, you know, kids rule, parents drool, you know, it's like, (laughs) it's like finding this like way to like kind of bridge that gap and, and say that, you know, we're all just like, we're all just people figuring it out and it's not always easy. Yeah. Now someone who is having a really challenging time figuring things out is Wei Wei played yeah. by Mei Chen. I- I'm really curious what you think about her role in this film, both as the actress and, and the character itself, because it strikes me that that is a really complicated role to play because we she's established early on as this person who is kind of you know in a playful way romantically interested in Wei Tung and and kind of you know respecting his relationship but also being like but maybe if you could be with anybody you might want to be with me in a way that's like again more charming than it may have come across in, in other people's hands um and then she ends up getting a, a version of what she maybe would have wanted in yeah. <laughs> her fantasy that ends up really being so painful for her because it's not actually the thing in any way she get she gets a version of having a loving mother uh, who who dotes on her a version of having a successful stable husband who supports her in her own artistic and in, uh endeavors and, and and a version of a family that she may have wanted or may have been even afraid to want for herself but it's all twisted because it's it's not actually it's just a facsimile of the thing and it's all predicated on this lie and uh and i'm really curious how that arc worked for you i mean it works beautifully because i i think you know we call this a lie we call this a sham or a facsimile but i feel like in some ways like she does get that it's like she gets the real thing even through this lie because 
I, for me, the movie implies that the three of them are going to be just like figuring it out and happy and, you know, living together and raising this kid. And like, I feel like they each provide something for each other that the other person can't give, which I think was really interesting. And I think way away, like, I love that she's not this like naive, you know, innocent, um, like childlike. I don't know. There's just like, she's kind of worldly. She, you know, she is very like, um, she knows it. I feel like, I don't know, maybe she's like, maybe you might disagree with this, but I feel like she kind of knows what she might want and she, or she's like unafraid and more bold. And as the film goes on and she starts to see the value of having this sort of nuclear family, um, she really develops, you know, a, a, a different shade to her personality. And, you know, as she discovers that she's pregnant and, you know, as, you know, choosing to, are choosing not to have an abortion. Um, it shows like a depth to her of like, of kind of accepting that she's getting what she wanted in a different way, and that that's kind of okay. And I kind of yeah. like the way that this, that you know that that's how that's handled because it feels more. I don't know. There's this is kind of a movie with like a few easy options, and I feel like the movie ends up choosing the most complicated version and the most interesting, which is like, they're going to figure it in. She doesn't have an abortion. She doesn't become a single mom. They're just going to, you know, forge out their own um, path as a family. Yeah. And I think that that, I think you're entirely right. And when I, when I was referencing earlier, the idea that this is kind of like a lie and a facsimile of, of, of a real family, that is what the, what is true during the bulk of the film, yeah, but sure, not sure, yeah, once yeah. they get to that end, uh, yeah. end point where I do agree that they've, they've all reached a sort of acceptance of their situation and, and seen it not as a burden, but as a value and as something that they, that neither, no, none of the three of them would have ever thought to have wanted for themselves necessarily, but it also feels kind of perfect in, in the way that it exists now, especially once the parents leave and they really can have, they can make the rules on what this family is going to be moving forward. Uh, and I love that as an ending. And I agree, it is, it is a very surprising one versus what you may have expected. Um, but I just love her arc throughout this because there's so much implied and suggested. A lot of it is just in Machen's performance, you know, when she has that phone yeah. call with her mom and, and nothing. And when I wa when I watched it the first time and then I remembered what it was, I had a very different memory of how that phone call went. I thought that there was something sort of like dramatic that was that that was revealed about their family about their mother-daughter relationship and whatever and and it's not at all it's there's when i rewatched it i was like oh there's actually it's just like a very mundane conversation that just gives you like a tiny insight into what their dynamic was which wasn't particularly unloving or abusive or terrible it was just kind of like she was worried about them in a way that suggested that maybe they never really prioritized her needs as much as yeah. they should have and maybe she was kind of running away from that and maybe that compulsion had had forced her to kind of deny certain things that she wanted for herself as a way of coping and instead like launching into this very uh precarious 
life as an artist that meant so much to her, but maybe was somewhat incomplete for what she really wanted, which was to have it all, right? She wanted a family that was stable and to pursue her art. And she was maybe forced over the course of her life to feel like she needed to choose between those things. She had to choose in these really in these situations that ended up making her feel very insecure in a way that maybe replicated that dynamic in her own life growing up. And none of that is said. I don't know if that was the impression that you got at all, but it just, there's these small moments that she has both the conversation on the phone and just the few things that happen between her and, uh, and, and mostly Mrs. Gao, uh, but also even Mr. Gao, when he gives that speech, you know, the, the sense of the, how warm they are to her, how validating they are to her and how emotional that makes her. I just, it feels like there's so much that is left unsaid that is beautifully rendered and really enhances the experience of, of, of her arc and of the film as a well. whole. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw this YouTube video, um, that, analyze this movie through like the motif of like photography um including like um like you know at the in the airport they're looking at the photos and to me it's like a way i I, it, it was a way of kind of everyone kind of acknowledging sort of like the elephant in the room of like simon and wei tung because there's a picture of the two of them and i think with both parents kind of like linger on it there's also like the wedding photograph um and the scene of uh, Mrs. Gao and Wei Wei kind of looking at photos. It was a really interesting YouTube video. Um, uh, and just like how like this is photographs kind of capture the family. I, I wish I rewatched it before recording because I don't quite remember exactly. But um, the photography is like capturing the family and sort of like solidifying, you know, this family and kind of like creating these um kind of creating this like happy version of this family that is really struggling with a lot of hidden secrets and betrayal and whatever. Um, so um, I bring this up because like, I feel like, you know, way, way when she's looking at these photographs or when she's like being photographed, she's like seeing that version of herself of like having this like very harmonious thing, um, family unit and how like that is sort of something that she might want. And then, you know, as you mentioned, the, the, the phone call scene and and stuff and like, yeah, like you expect something really dramatic to happen, but it's just like more simple and it's like more understated than that. And I feel like that's really, um, really valuable and, and really rare and hard to do. Yeah. And it, and it relies so much on what the performer is able yeah. to do in the scene just yeah. through their unspoken mannerisms and and facial expressions and things like that especially a phone call scene phone call scene it seems to me that could be the most challenging thing you ask an actor to do because they're just forced to have an entire conversation against no one you know and they yeah. can't play off against them in the moment they can't react to their their, their scene partner's reaction visually and yet they're it's such a great opportunity for the audience to get a, a clearer sense of what's going on with with your character because it's a rare moment where you get to see a person talk to someone else and not have to guard their reaction outside of their voice, right? They have to keep their voice in a certain way, but their whole body can react and let the audience see that reaction because they are unobserved within the scene. So I always think that a phone calls are always very interesting and can be yeah. really insightful windows into our characters. Oh, I totally agree. 
Um, so I, I want to talk about a certain scene and then kind of use that to kind of pivot towards Simon and Wei Tang. But what did you think of the wedding night scene? Um, because that's quite controversial on Letterboxd. Um, I don't, I still don't quite know what to make of it. Um, and, uh, and how that plays out with, you know, how the, you know, I think my favorite scene in the film is when the three of them are arguing in English and the two parents are like, well, what's happening? Yes, um, that, but I, I do want to that, talk about that. Um, you know, sex the scene, fight scene or whatever. Is, yeah. The fight scene just briefly is maybe the funniest part of the whole movie. Yeah. It's, I do think it's slightly underdone by the fact that we then later learn that Mr. Gao knows English. And it's yeah, like kind of robs that true. scene in retrospect <laughs> of some of the comedy. But I just, I just love the kind of like, like them not knowing what's going on and him just being like, just don't talk. Just, just keep eating, keep your head down. Don't worry about yeah. it. <laughs> and them trying to like, and her trying to guess like, did she, did he not pay his bills? It's just very right. funny. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the whole, I mean, the wedding sequence, the wedding night sequence specifically is, I feel like if you were to, like, if you were to update this, like if you were to make this movie in 2023, I think that you would have staged that slightly differently to make what is happening more explicit. You know, I think that it is in, in 1993, it is kind of, there is an implication that there is an understanding of what's happening there that, and it would be more tasteful to just not be too explicit. But I think, you know, in our modern lens, uh, it's easy to see that situation in a way that is very, you know, that would be very uh, abusive, right? That would be the not honoring consent. I think the implication, and if you want to just take the film on its terms, I think what they're trying to suggest there that happened is both of them are very intoxicated, right? They establish that they're both very, very intoxicated as a result of the evening. Uh, and there's a sense that she wants to have this experience and that he initially says no, but there is this, I feel like the way that the film progresses after that and even inside of that scene before it cuts away, it's the idea that he is going along with it because he is getting some sort of some that, that there is an implied consent that occurs in that moment right, right. that is not stated. Uh, and then if they had let the scene continue a little bit longer, that would have been made clear. But yeah. as it is staged, it is ambiguous whether he ever actually consents to it, which then given what happens afterwards is, you know, uh, could be potentially a very traumatic experience for him. But I do think that the film wants you to believe that he initially says, no, I don't want to do this. And then kind of, the the ceremony of it's their wedding night he goes through all of the other steps that he's supposed to on the wedding night and he kind of conforms to the role of the of the yeah that was that that was my take on it in that like he like she wants it more than he does but he's also like this is what men do on a wedding night and this is like what's being expected of me outside what's being expected of me from my own wife and i think it's like I'm married to her, so like, I might yes. as well. Um, I don't think and, that it's it's an actual assault. I don't think no. she's taking advantage. No, of no, no, in no. That, no. In that way, um, on Letterbox, they someone called it corrective rate, which I thought was very funny. Um, not that concept is not funny on its own, no. but that someone said that about an Angui movie, I thought was very funny. Yeah. Um, uh, but, wow. <laughs> uh, I I think there's an element of what you're saying of like the not not pressure but just like conformity of being like this is just what happens and um i 
you know, the thing is that for me, like if a character does not feel, you know, violated and like, if that's not going to be the theme of the movie, then like, I don't think it's fair to put that on the movie. Does that make sense? Right. Like he doesn't mention it as anything other than consensual later. No one's yeah, like the way, talks, like the way he talks, the way he talks about it, about it was just it, like, it, it just got happened. out of hand. Something, yeah. Like things, it happened and then it just got out of hand and it, and it makes you think that, maybe he was willing to go along with it up to a point but thought that it would maybe that he would stop and then he and then at certain point he didn't stop it and it didn't stop right right and so and and yeah so i agree with you i think that we only have that to go off and we also have to like think about we also have to think about like just like the way that we i mean this is like 1993 and not you know not to be all like oh we talked about things differently back then but i just don't think that like that was, you know, I don't, I just don't think the conversation was had in that same way as it would be today, 30 years later. Yeah. I think if we're talking about authorial intent, which we don't necessarily yeah. have to always when it comes right. to analyzing a film, but if right. we are talking about authorial intent, if Angley was going to make that scene be a scene where he is taken it where Wei Tong is taken advantage of, he would have made it explicit have, in yeah. the scene. I think that we don't need to use that standard. We can use other standards in order to judge it. But I also think that, you know, in 1993 we did talk about things differently. What that what that choice to talk about things differently resulted in is that it leaves a gap of language where where things that are entirely acceptable occur within that gap and things that are very unacceptable occur yeah, within sure, that gap sure. and we're kind of protected. Absolutely. So, and that's why it's, you know, I think we both agree it's better that we've evolved into being more specific about that sort of thing. But yeah. I think that also is why we can't just condemn any sort of ambiguity as the worst possible reading. Right. I, I, I bring that up because it's, you know, part of the movie, of course, and, and there is that gap that we have to con- consider and, and uh, analyze and talk about, but um, I bring that up because, like, part of me is wondering, like, is Wei Tung maybe more bisexual than, um, you know, he might let on? I mean, this is also, like, you know, uh, this is also, like, way before bisexuality was something that was even talked about in pop culture like this. You know, this is even, like, before... I mean, this is around the time when people were like saying bisexuals, you know, were just like a stop to being gay. And so I mean, people still say that now, but you know what I mean? So I'm like, maybe, you know, they didn't have that kind of language to, you know, see, like he might actually be attracted to Wei Wei in the, in the sense that he doesn't quite understand or know or, or that the movie knows how to talk about. Yeah, that is entirely possible. I don't think that that's necessarily what's happening there, though, just because of other things that we see in the movie. Like, there's at least one other time she does kiss him and has no response to it. Right. And in a way where it's like she comments on it as well, like it feels like this was not, like this was a cold and and meaningful kiss in any way. Uh, So I don't, I don't think that that's the case, but it's entirely, po- I mean, you know, no one is a hundred percent one thing or the other. Very few yeah. are. So it's, but I, I think it, it was more of the kind of context of, 
feeling like you needed to conform to this pressure that to conform to this role of husband on your wedding night and how incredibly intoxicated they were. And like at a certain point, you know, when your eyes are closed and things can just happen and it doesn't necessarily mean that that is what you, you know, would prefer to be happening, but yeah. in, in terms of a sexual orientation sense, yeah. but I do want to mention that if it was a bisexual thing, just as a way to kind of let people know where we're at, uh, in the early nineties or mid nineties back in 1995. And I double checked this while you were talking, uh, the cover of Newsweek, uh, was, uh, bisexuality. Like it was a new trend, uh, that people that America had to reckon with is bisexuality in big letters. And then the sub head headline was not gay, not straight, a new sexual sexual identity emerges. So, yeah, and that was 1995. Exactly. So that's two years before this movie. <laughs> so, so two years after. Oh yeah, two years after. Yeah, sorry, this is yeah. two years after this movie. So, well, which of I course, mean, like bisexual people existed, have always existed. Yeah, yeah, knew but that, you know, but that's a the, sense of like where the culture in was the mainstream, on that right? Exactly, like the cultural discourse around orientation. I don't think had caught up to them, and I still don't think they have. Um, no, I well, so I, I want to talk about Simon, Simon and Wade Tongue, because you know Simon, this poor guy. We love Simon. I, I love Simon. Um, and, uh, you know, we love Simon. Um, and, uh, I was just like, wait, why does that, why does the phrase love Simon? <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> feels was so familiar joke. to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Was, yeah. We love Simon. Uh, <laughs> and I, what do you think of their relationship? Like as a, how I it's portrayed it's, and, and, and I love stuff. how it's portrayed. I, I love their relationship and how it's portrayed. I think Mitchell uh, Lichtenstein as Simon does a really fantastic job, uh, really anchoring their relationship. I think in a way that Winston Chow as Wei Tung kind of, sometimes it feels real and sometimes it feels, you know, I mean, he's got a lot of stuff to do in this movie, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily uh, taking a shot at him, but I do think that Mitchell Lichtenstein as Simon really helps anchor the, the most, reality of it i love the casualness to their relationship in the sense of they really feel like people who have known each other for a long time and they have a shorthand with each other and that is a marker of the emotional uh intensity of their relationship the emotional honesty of their relationship i love that we get moments of like when wei tung it wants to kind of fight with simon for having been out too late one night that there's this kind of sense of we've had this i know exactly what you're doing and i'm not going to engage with you right now like in a way yeah. like only people who have known each other for a very long time <laughs> and have a, a again like that shorthand of like i know what this what these dynamics are. I love how Simon knows so much about Wei Tung when he's trying to kind of like coach uh, Wei Wei into like understanding like all of his kind of uh, yeah. nooks and crannies. Like there's this whole thing where like in Lady Bird, where they say like, well, what is love if not like paying attention yeah. to something yeah. and really knowing it? And I think that Simon really knows mm -hmm. Wei Tung. And I think Wei Tung really knows Simon. I think we get less insight into Simon's and uh, into Wei Tung's side of that relationship. Um, but I think that that relationship is more complicated for him. So for, for Wei Tung, what it is, is his guard comes down when he's around Simon. He really feels relaxed in a way that he never feels in any other context, not at work, not around his parents, certainly not engaging with Wei Wei and the apartment building slash loft or whatever. Like he just has this kind of relaxed comfort in his skin when he's with Simon that he never gets anywhere else. And that tells you so much about their relationship. So I just love it. It feels like a real couple 
in a way that, especially at this time, I don't feel like gay characters oftentimes got the chance to feel like a real couple. Like you think of like the birdcage or whatever, which is, you know, a good movie, but there's this sense of like having to play for the straight audience or the sense of having to kind of like translate a queer relationship for a gay audience uh, in certain ways. And none of that is here. It just feels honest. I mean, there's definitely like a version of this movie where like Simon is like Simone, you know, and they just like, (laughs) you know, like maybe the conflict isn't quite as pronounced as it would be, but, um, or as it is, but yeah, like, I, I think this, you know, I love that it's a queer couple. And like, I agree, they feel like they're truly in love and they're actually in a relationship and they have that shorthand. And they also feel very like sexual as a couple. Um, they're definitely like, you know, like shown in bed together multiple times in like various states of undress. And I, if I recall correctly, even like when the parents are there, they're like sneaking in and out. So like, yeah, there's a moment where they think they're alone and they're like about to like hook up, like on, yeah. like they're making out and undressing as they walk up the stairs. And then they realize that the dad is asleep in the next room. Right. They have to, and like, so, try to, like, like get dressed real grass. That, I mean, like to me, it's like, feels radical. You know, even yeah. from now, even 30 years later, it feels radical to like have this much of like sexual attention in between these two characters. Um, and they also and like, they see, they have friends, they have, they friends, have social like, life. Like we only get a, a hint of it, but there's this really, there's a large sense of like what they're not doing because their parents are there. Right. right. And I, I think that's so key because I think anyone else who would make this movie would have just made Wei Tong be in the closet outside of his relationship with Simon. Right. And that's not what it is. He is openly gay in his life. He's his coworkers are like seem to be somewhat aware of it. He has a rich social life in including Simon, but not specifically just because Simon is there. And uh and it's really just that his his parents don't know. And I think that that is, you know, especially for the time, really interesting choice, you know? Yeah. Everybody knows that he's with Simon. Like it's not that's not a even like the neighborhood neighbors like are the neighbors yeah. like know that and like they have complicated relationships with, you know, the people on their, like, it's just like a very, yeah, like Simon and, you know, Wei Tung just feel like they have a full life. And that is such a kind of beautiful thing to see with this kind of movie. And again, like it makes all these relationships feel so much like so much is springing from that relationship because it's so strong that it can withstand this insane premise and all this pressure and a baby and like yes. infidelity in some way, you know, if you want to call it that. And like um, nobody, nobody dies. Nobody gets like victimized by a brutal, like hate crime. You know, there's none of those beats get hit in this, which at that time, and even, you know, just like thinking about like, remember that Jake Gyllenhaal movie Demolition where like there's like a, yeah. a gay teenager and so, like he of course has to get gay bashed in yeah. the third act of that movie like there none of that is here like they just get to be people who live their lives yeah. and I mean obviously certainly that's something that happens to people I don't mean to discount their stories but it's nice to see just a like everyday sort of couple engaging yeah. in a somewhat absurd scenario but holding on to their you know ordinary qualities that make it kind of extraordinary in and of itself um. Yeah, so do you want to hear something funny about Mitchell Lichtenstein? Sure. So I was looking up his, I was looking at the Wikipedia pages for like everyone just to see like kind of like where their careers went. And um, Mitchell Lichtenstein, he directed that movie um, Teeth, 
Did you ever see that oh, or like heard of it? I, I've but, certainly heard of it. <laughs> um, so that's kind of an interesting. I don't know. Fourteen nice. years later, he makes this like comedy horror movie as his directorial <laughs> debut. Um, but that's what he did after this movie. <laughs> that's cool. Um, but uh, I mean, his great performance. He didn't act much. Actually, I feel like you know a lot of these actors. I mean, Winston Chow. He kind of has a more you know long lasting career. I mean, he's was working up until like the twenty tens, um, and probably like you know probably his career got you know del- like um, derailed by the pen- by the pandemic after that. But um, you know, Mei Chin, she doesn't really work much. Mitchell Lichtenstein, you know, he doesn't Wait, and work as much. That's such a shame because Mei Chin is so good in this. Movie. Yeah, she's so. I mean, I feel like if this movie gets made today, one of the things that's different about its legacy is like Mei Chin is getting is booking she, well, many so roles after. That's this. a good um, segue because I wanted to talk about the reception of the movie. Um, of course, like critically acclaimed here in uh, the U.S., um, nominated for Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, and also six Independent Spirit Awards, including Best uh, Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and... Um, oh, I'm so sorry, wild. no, I'm sorry. Best, um, best Lead Actor for Mitchell Lissensky, not Supporting, Best Female Lead for Mei Chin, and Best Supporting Actress for um, Ale Gua. So, um, and also it's Best... It's so uh, wild that that's director. true. That, that, that it had such a robust response for an indie film that's like as good as it gets basically at that time and yet it i feel like it just has no lasting legacy people don't know that this movie exists well this movie has yeah i feel like Adrian man woman kind of ate its launch a little bit because it comes out the year later and is an even bigger hit um yeah. in, in the u.s but the wedding banquet is what got Ang Lee uh the sense and sensibility directing job um, this, I mean, the two of the movies together, but I think Emma Thompson and Lindsay Duncan, um, said that, not, not Lindsay Duncan, um, Lindsay, um, oh gosh, um, well, the producer of Sense and Ability, they said that, like, The Wedding Banquet was the movie that felt most like a Jane Austen type movie. Um, so this movie does have kind of an impact on Ang Lee's career because I think it really helps him to, um, fully transition to American, you know, Hollywood or you know English language movies. Um, and yeah, I think because I the, believe that the way that that arc goes is that the wedding banquet got them sense and sensibility, but then Eat Drink Man Woman came out and was this big success in the meantime. But even though he had already, and so many people assumed that that's why he got the movie, but he actually yeah. had already gotten the sense and sensibility. Exactly job at that right. Point. Um, like. I think Adrian Van Woon, yeah, exactly. Like, kind of really boosted his um, himself. Uh, that Lindsay Dorn is a director of, uh, sorry, the producer of um, Sense Sensibility, not Don- Lindsay Duncan. Um, but yeah, and um, so you know, before we kind of finish up here, just want to know, like, what are some of your favorite like scenes in the film, or like lines or moments that really stand out to you? Well, I do want to, and this is kind of a connection to the last thing we were talking about with their the relationship between Simon and Wei Tung. But uh, when, as soon as that wedding night happened, I was like, okay, here it is. We're back in rom-com territory, and there's going to be the big kind of start of the third act, uh, explosive, explosive uh, fight where the two, where Simon finds out what happened, and he and they break up, and then they have to get back together by the end of the movie. 
And the movie totally doesn't do that at all. Like, they're just like, no, like, Simon is... Because, of course, like, why would Simon get that upset about it? Because, like, he's a real person and he, you know, especially in the kind of cultural milieu that he's in. And I, I would imagine he'd be pretty understanding about that situation, quote unquote, getting out of hand. Right. And so I like that they play that to the point where they don't even show that conversation. What upsets him is that she's pregnant. And that is a good thing to reasonably be upset about because that really changes things in a way that like a one night stand in that kind of absurd situation wouldn't necessarily, like you could believe that doesn't mean anything to him and it doesn't jeopardize their connection, their relationship, but a baby could definitely jeopardize their relationship. And so I love the choice to make that be the conflict. And also that like, you know, Simon talks about like, I don't know if I have a place here anymore, if that's the situation, but you never really believe that he's actually going to leave. You know, there, I think that they do a good job of, and I think that that's a strength to the movie. I don't, I don't think that they're playing that conflict for contrivance sake. I think they're paying, playing it for the emotional, you know, uh, turmoil that that would send all of these characters in. Um, and it makes that moment where they all choose to be together in this throuple, if you will, you know, of the family yeah. means so much more. You know what that reminds me of is on Friends. Uh, do you, did you watch Friends or do you or have I you? I did, yeah. Um, you know, like, uh, there's the whole thing with, like, Susan and Carol mm-hmm. and Susan pregnant and Ross is the father of the baby and um, Carol, sorry, no, Carol is pregnant. Susan is, like, fighting for her name to be included in the baby's name and like wants some kind of ownership over it and it's because like as we were saying like in the early 90s like queer couples having kids just is like not i mean it's not easy today but it's even harder back 30 years ago and you know susan's way of dealing with that sort of uncertainty about like what her role is is to kind of force herself into this baby's name which i don't think ultimately happens but um I could, so I understand that that tension of being like, you know, now, you know, Wei Wei and Wei Tung have this legal, you know, ownership over each other. They have this connection and Simon's place in it is really a big question mark. And that's why when he gets the envelope from, you know, Mr. Gao, it is sort of a meaningful way of seeing like, okay, there is, I do have some tie to this family um, and sort of understanding and so he's sort of understanding that, like, he is a part of this family. And the, the way they deal with that question is to, like, come together as a as a little family. Um, for me, I think, of course, we didn't really talk much about the wedding banquet itself, which is, like, the centerpiece <laughs> no. of the movie. It's the, tit- the titular role, um, <laughs> speaking of Lady Bird. Um, yeah. But it, I think it's, like, I mean, it's such a funny and beautiful and quite sad, but really, like... It made me, like, when I watched this during the pandemic, it made me miss, like, family weddings and just that, like, chaos that happens of, like, everyone's drinking and there's games and there's, like, loud and jokes and dancing and whatever. And it's just, like, it also reminded me, I mean, I'm sure this was an influence on The Farewell. Yeah. Which has a similar, like, showpiece wedding sequence that is just, like, so you know, charming and endearing and, and lovely and, and, and stuff. And, but also with a hint of melancholy at the center. Um, mm. Yeah. I just, it's a really great sequence. Um, also with, Ang Lee's son's acting debut as the baby. In this I movie. know. Let's not forget. Um, future Ang Lee star, you know, amazingly. <laughs> I'm excited about that film. Um, also, I mean, I love the ending. The ending is like beautiful. It's just like perfect Ang Lee ending. Um, you know, it's just like, 
ah oh, man like to me like that's that's the kind of ending that makes this movie a hit you know like it, you just like you know you talk about movie endings that just like make you want to like just like cheer and like just like fall in love and stuff and to me that that that's this movie and also you just i don't know i feel like it would have been so easy to like have that temptation of like well of course we're gonna like cut to six like nine months later and like they're all a family to, like and we get to see what their life is like as a family like right before the closing credits and like and we get to see and they don't do that they like oh, yeah. show the restraint of just like letting it be that moment where the three of them are together in that airport and like it just like yeah such a such a great choice it's and, such uh, a great and choice the, the and... less obvious choice but the more impactful one yeah yeah exactly and it's about their commitment to each other and like that's what this whole movie has been kind of building up towards and, and that's I what's think, beautiful about it yeah totally agree and I, th- I think another really impactful choice is to show the three of them very sad that mm-hmm. the parents are leaving because like again it'd be kind of funny to be like okay what a relief you know or like yeah something like that like thank god we don't deal with that anymore like kind of ended on like a, a button of a joke but instead it's like really sad because like there is the possibility that they might not see their parents again, you know? I think uh, that's kind of the implication. That's the implication, that, like, that's right? So the that, last time they're going to see yeah. them. So there is they talk about like, like, oh, once you have the baby, like come visit us. But it really feels like it's a goodbye. It and feels, it feels like, like the final, yeah. And the movie has done the work to make every each of those three characters have distinct relationships with both of the parents that ultimately prove to be very emotionally meaningful and moving. Yeah. And, and that's what makes that moment land so well. And it's a sense of like, this divide needs to continue. We can't live together forever for good reasons, but you've meant a lot to me and this has been valuable. And I wish that we didn't have to end this dynamic at the same time. And it's just messy and beautiful and complicated and, and wonderful in all the best ways. Yes, totally agree. And that is a really beautiful sentiment to end this discussion on um unless you have any other final things you want to bring up but no i think that's um, good for me yeah well alex thank you so much um it's such a pleasure when i get to talk about one of my favorite filmmakers and favorite movies on this podcast and i'm not the one that's suggesting it so (laughs) um you know thank you so much for um for suggesting the wedding banquet um it was quite a lovely film and discussion uh please let the listeners know what you're working on what you're doing where they can find all your amazing podcasts that you are managing Sure. Well, I will definitely do all of those things. But before I do that, for anyone who is listening to this episode and haven't actually watched The Wedding Banquet, I do implore you, please, if this conversation hasn't convinced you, let me give it one more shot. Watch this movie. It's worth the time. Right now, it's like streaming on Tubi it's on and Tubi, Pluto TV yeah. in the US for free It's with ads. It's, it's really worth watching. It's such a hidden gem. It's like no. the iconic hidden gem yeah yeah literally like it's there's no excuse not to it's a perfect movie in every sense of the word one of many of Ang Lee's perfect movies 
Absolutely. But speaking of perfect things that are, you have no excuse to avoid uh, watching, uh, you should definitely follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Media Thinkings. If you go to my Letterboxd page, you could find my complete rankings of every uh, film by Ang Lee, uh, because I am a lunatic who needs to rank everything. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in addition to that, you can follow, I am the podcast director of thepopbreak.com. You can go to thepopbreak.com, click on the podcast tab, see all of the podcasts that I am uh, overseeing uh you can subscribe to pop break tv which is a tv uh, centric podcast feed that has a bunch of fun shows in it uh including one that i host once a month called uh tv break where we kind of uh do uh, some news some reviews some updates on the streaming streaming wars every every month this month we talked uh at length about the citadel uh amazon show which is uh it was not uh didn't go over well with the podcast but it was a fun discussion uh, to be had for sure um uh in addition i also uh have a podcast feed up through popbreak.com called pop break today which is sort of a catch-all for movies and music and, and wrestling and all sorts of stuff that the pop break is up to i have a podcast on there that comes out once a month called bill versus the mcu where me and bill bodkin who is the editor-in-chief of podbreak.com uh we last year we watched every single uh, MCU film from start to finish for the first four phases. Uh, and we talked about them uh, in 12 months. Uh, then in the last six months, we've been watching all of the Defenders shows from uh, the Netflix. So that's Daredevil, that's Jessica Jones, that's Luke Cage, uh, leading up to the Defenders episode, which we just recorded uh, and released uh, this month. So definitely check all of that out. And uh, next month, our episode is going to be catching up on uh, phase five of the MCU, which includes Quantum Mania and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. So definitely check that out as well. Yes, um, really great uh, work you're doing over there, and I cannot praise Bill versus MCU enough. I love I love the podcast. It was so much fun to uh, listen to all the all the films, and, and I mean, like I kind of forgot about the Netflix show, so it was fun to to go back and be like, oh right, like I watched like two seasons of Daredevil and one season of Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, um, which is yeah, wild to think about that era. What a what a different time that was. Yeah, all that stuff has gone. It's definitely been like memory holds for a lot of people. Yeah, like, rewatching them it's been a great experience. We've had guests on every one of those episodes where we've really gotten to interview people who were involved in the shows, or involved yeah. in covering the shows, big fans of the shows all of those episodes all those interviews are really fun and i really even if you don't care that much about it and you don't want to rewatch it with us i definitely recommend checking it out because it's, it's it's a really fun uh show that i'm very yeah. happy to be a part of yeah uh it's a treasure um it really is uh you can find me on twitter at vertigay 314 also please follow the podcast at it to be you remember to rate review and subscribe uh, we are continuing with uh, the Queer Romance miniseries uh, in in a few weeks with um, my friend Daniel is going to be talking to us about bros, um, which is going to be fun to um, really go into that film and how it is actually a um, like a first of its kind, to be honest, even though that, that did get mocked a lot online. But 
truthfully, it is a first of its kind. We're going to talk about it um, and all the ways that it kind of breaks a lot of barriers and, and, and stuff. So it'll be fun. Uh, Daniel's also a returning guest. Um, so that'll I'm, be. I'm a huge fan fun. of that film, so I can't wait to hear what Yeah, I, so am I. I think it's actually like a really, um, really great romantic comedy. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, and then, um, yeah, so uh, Alex, thank you so much, listeners. The Wedding Banquet is on Tubi, free with ads. You have no excuse not to watch it. Um, I believe Edric Man Woman is also on Tubi, free with ads. So, Also a very good film. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, all these movies are kind of spread out, all different streaming services. Just search for it and look, you know. You can't, uh, you can't go wrong with Ang Lee, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, so thanks for listening and thank you, Alex.